Twinkle, twinkle, Tabby's star Dips in brightness so bizarre Could it be we found E.T.? Nope, not yet It's dust we see The Interplanetary Podcast The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind Your hosts here in London Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin what do you think of that, Matt? I do. I, I really like it. I really like that as a quote. Which, which, which when I saw it, when I saw it um, tweeted, I thought we better start the show with that one. Oh well, we have to take our hats off to Nadia Drake. Yeah, thanks, Nadia. This is from her um, National Geographic piece about Tabby Star. Tabby Star. I like that. Does it look like a cat? <laughs> no, well, it, well, there's a really interesting story about this, which I didn't really know about. I, I mean, I knew about Tabby Star because actually Brian Blessed was going on about Tabby Star and about yeah, he it was. being an alien megastructure, which of course we all knew it wasn't going to be. Exactly. <sighs> Tabby Star, why is it called Tabby Star? Because it's named after Tabitha Boyajian. There we go. Obviously, we've pronounced her name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I just make you say them all now. That's fine. Tabitha Boajan. No, I'm good. I'm good with that. So the star is informally named after her, Tabby's star. And sh- what she did, and this is really cool, she, to, to find out what the heck was going on with this star, because mm. as you know, it sort of dims, uh, but very unregularly which which is weird because stars dim because something is traveling in front of it normally a planet or something like that so something in orbit so you'd expect it to be regular because orbits are regular a bit like you when you've been eating your prunes that's true my my dried apricots this wasn't doing that though this was dimming weirdly dimming so uh this she spent a lot of money no well she raised a lot of money on on a kickstarter campaign hundred grand hundred grand uh, yeah, and and therefore she was able to harness the power of a bunch of ground-based instruments to try and catch the star in the act of dimming. The way you said harness the power then, that sounded a bit like uh, He-Man on the top of Battle Cat. <laughs> well, she did. She held aloft her Kickstarter sword of Greyskull. Oh, yes. Bob's your uncle. There we are. So 200 collaborators managed to analyse 22 months of data... And they've written a paper about what is causing the uh, the this this dimming. Enlighten me. So it looks like it's just dust. And the reason why they oh. think <laughs> the reason why they think it's dust, and I, and I, I might be wrong with this because this is what I heard off another podcast. They analyse the light dimming in different spectrums of light. So you know, some at red, some at blue, some at green, and it was only uh, some of the colours that were dimming. And this is indicative, very indicative, of small particles of dust. Ah, okay. So it's it's dust coming going in front of not a megastructure at all, because obviously if it was a megastructure, then then you would see dimming in all wavelengths of light. But this is just the dust blocking it. They still don't know what's causing the dust. So something is releasing dust in front of the star. Uh, I know. Do you? Yeah. Go on then. Well, I don't know if I can say or not because I'm under I'm under contract. Okay, that's fair enough. We'll we'll just move on and just leave our listeners. It rhymes with Malian Degger structure. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe it's the dust of a nearby star having its alien megastructure built around it. 
All I'm saying is, listen to Tom Tom DeLong speak from Blink One Eighty Two, and he'll he'll be with me. Matt, have you heard that yet? The Joe Rogan podcast with Tom DeLong. No. Oh my god. <laughs> Prepare to be highly entertained what, for if, about an hour. I'm going to send it to you. I'm not going to say much. It's amazing. Is he a nutter as well? Oh, like you wouldn't believe. I think he's just trying to sell books. I think he's got a book coming out. But <laughs> wow. But I don't think it's an act. I'm going to send it to you. Listeners, if you've heard this podcast, please let us know what you thought of it. Because my mind is still blown. And I listened to it about a month ago. Send me a link and I'll, and I'll listen to it. I will. I will. So Matt, what else has been going on? So I noticed uh, a really, really cool thing in the news. And it, and it was about this, uh, a book um, that was written in 1968. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was basically trying to work out what the world would look like in 2018. Interesting. Towards 2018 or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, toward the year 2018 was the name of the book. It's basically trying to predict what 2018 was going to be like 50 years ago, right? Wow. There was an amazing prediction about global warming. This is, so this is Thomas Malone, mm. who predicted that large-scale climate modification will be affected inadvertently from rising levels of carbon dioxide. Such global warming might require the creation of an international climate body with policing powers, an undertaking that should be as non-political as possible. Tick. Wow, he's got that one bang on. I mean, literally, couldn't got more bang on. But get this, Gordon F. MacDonald, who's also Mm. uh, advocates uh, climate change, an early advocate of it, he writes a chapter on space that, that, bear in mind, this is 1968. This is when Apollo 8, we're talking about, oh, my God, men are going to the moon year this is the year yeah. of like space exploration he says that we'll that we'll abandon manned interplanetary travel and uh, because the apollo missions will have exhausted their political usefulness and that weather and communication satellites would then become the big thing and a global communication system would permit the use of giant computer complexes noting the revolutionary potential of a data bank that we could be queried at any time. So in fact, that is amazing. That's amazing. Because <laughs> there's no way. I mean, you know, in 1968, you could predict global warming, of course. But that is pretty amazing. Yeah, so he's predicted, yeah, that, that we'll shrug off manned space travel and that, and that satellites and all that will, will, will help us with the internet the internet. I mean, bear in mind, this is before the internet, for goodness sake. I mean, it's just ridiculous. That's pretty insane. I mean, that's not really like a horoscope. That's pretty, it's pretty bang on. Pretty bang on, isn't it? So, the real bad thing... The, the The real uh, heartbreaking news this week was the death of John Young. Yes. Yes. Awful. Um, very sad indeed. What a complete legend, as we will find out. Yeah, so, I mean, that is a sad milestone. So that means there's less than half of the Apollo moonwalkers still alive, which Very sad. actually means... Good age, though, Matt. Good age. 87. Great, great age. And, of course, the super sadness is that we'll never have him on the interplanetary podcast. I know. It's a real shame. Real shame. Yeah, that is a real shame. Um, something else that happened this week, which was absolutely amazing was uh the japanese astronaut kanai 
who's gone to yeah. the International Space Station, uh, yeah. claiming on a on a tweet that he'd grown nine centimetres. Oh, uh, he, so he sort of said, "Oh my God, I've grown nine centimetres in three weeks." And it's not a euphemism, is it, Matt? No, don't think it. Because <laughs> I won't have I won't have any of them on my show. No, so he he'd grown nine centimetres in height from the top of his head to the bottom of his heels, Jamie, and right. Uh, he was really worried because that makes him now too tall to get into a Soyuz, which means he can't get home. Oh, what? So, <laughs> so oh, I wish I, I wish I had the problem of nine centimeters extra height. Well, but maybe you can go up, but that's a reason to go into space, isn't it? There you go. I might just do that. Yeah. But it, so anyway, this tweet got international attention. It was on the BBC science, uh, uh, section and and people at work were coming up to me and go, Oh, have you heard about this Japanese, um, astronaut? And I was getting really excited. Oh, we're definitely talking about that. But even better was that Hmm. the next day he tweeted and went, no, actually we, we didn't measure it correctly. And I've only grown two centimeters. <laughs> oh God! And, and and another spokesman said, "No, he definitely, he definitely, um, he definitely thought he had grown nine centimeters, but it, and, and he wasn't sort of making it up. He genuinely was worried he couldn't get home." Well, listen, Matt, we all we all mistake centimeters with inches when measuring ourselves. I mean, I do it regularly, um, but that would be that would be understandable uh, you know, if he if he kind of just said, "Oh no, I meant nine centimeters and not two inches or something." But it wasn't put it up on my tinder profile yeah okay <laughs> but he, he well i it doesn't really i it doesn't give me much faith in the, all these experiments that they're doing up, up on the international space station oh actually talking about the international space station that's really true i mean if you know that's quite a big mistake to make before you tweet it out isn't it yeah after you tweet it out rather but talking about the International Space mm. Station, Michael, Michael Foles has been talking about the International Space Station. And actually, I heard him on the radio. Yeah, and actually, he, was, he actually said that on our uh, podcast a few weeks ago, didn't he, that we recorded? Yeah, can everyone for, else just kind of yeah. get with the... I mean, you know, we did this months ago. We, did it, we actually genuinely covered that story months yeah. ago. But it's just, it's just picking... Good for Michael Foles. He's, he's very worried that the International Space Station will be allowed to just burn up in the atmosphere and uh, be destroyed uh, uh, because mm. we because there'll be no more money to run it and he doesn't think that commercial companies are going to be able to do this so he's he's dreading this basically what he considers one of the greatest achievements of mankind coming to an end because we're going to be building the you know the deep space gateway and there just isn't money to do both that's very true that is very true he was also pressed about uh, whether he thinks there's life out there he said, well, there's so many stars and so many planets that uh, I don't see how there can't be. Did he refuse to answer any of their questions? <laughs> he didn't, but oh. I think that they just cut it out, whereas we're bold hacks. Bold hacks. We, bold we hacks. keep that stuff in, you know? So go back and listen to that that episode. It's well worth listening to Mike Fole interview, because actually it, it, it contains Definitely. quite a lot. I, I, got, I got a lot out of listening to it again and again and again uh, while editing it, so it's, it's a good one. Uh, did you? S- uh, um, and and as, as everybody knows, Matt, now it's 2018. We've made our peace with Fole, haven't we? Uh, well, you've definitely. We're just much more, much more peaceful men. Definitely. Did you? I'm much more zen. <laughs> did you see the video uh, on the internet? The video with the mirror being made for the I for did the giant Magellan telescope. The GMTO. How nuts is that? Ah. Uh, 
Oh my god! It it's unbelievable. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And the how- glass arcs that will let astronomers peer back millions of years, a decades in the making. Oh my god! Yeah, a decade to make this giant mirror. It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's so cool. So go how and rad's that. It, yeah, go and watch that video of of the yeah the, of the of the of the mirrors being ground down for the. The, the the GMT unbelievable. That makes me really happy. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It's that it's, it's building something that will unveil. Yeah. So much. But it's beautiful to watch, isn't it? It's it's beautiful to watch all those chunks yeah. of glass melting and becoming a kind of swimming pool of molten glass on the top of this disc. Oh my god, it's incredible. Matt, what's your favourite song with the with the word glass in it? Heart of Glass by Blondie. <laughs> I knew you'd say that. Oh come I don't on! Think I can... Don't. I don't think I can name another. Um, is my point? Oh, actually, yes. No, I do. My actual. What fav- about Annie Lennox? Go on then. What's that one? Walking on broken glass. Yeah, that's quite a good. One. Although I don't know if that's the title. Now, what about Gentle Giant in a Glass House? Anyway, we digress. Sorry. <laughs> so, Sorry, everyone. Um, yeah, but I like a little bit of music coming in. So, yeah, who's our astronaut of the week, Jamie? Well, obviously, John Watts Young. Uh, do you know what? Not, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Do you know what? John John Young is not only astronaut of the week, he might be astronaut of the age. He re- I mean, Absolutely. Ge- genuinely, if you, yeah. if you were a kid, you want to be an astronaut. If you're an astronaut, you want to be John Young. It's time for Astronaut of the Week. Born in San Francisco, California in September 1930. A day after Ray Charles, <laughs> one cool of my that? personal favourites. So cool. So, yeah, in the year of sliced bread, and who else do you think was born in 1930? Right, this, this is ridiculous. Buzz Aldrin, <laughs> Neil Armstrong, Mike Collins, and ten more astronauts. That's unbelievable, isn't it? It's ridiculous. <laughs> At 18 months old, he moved to Georgia and then to Orlando in Florida. Yep, and in 1952, he got his Bachelor of Science degree in aeronautical engineering from the unfortunately titled GIT, the Georgia Institute Hmm. of Technology. Absolutely. So looking at service, in 1952, Young joined Nash Naval Reserve Officers Training Corps. Um, He became a fire officer on the Fletcher-class destroyer warship USS Laws and did a tour of duty in the Korean War. Yeah, and then he became a Navy helicopter pilot, joined a fighter squadron flying planes, including the F-9 swept-wing Cougar. Oh, yes. yes. And and one of my favourites, the F-8 Crusader. I used to have a, uh, an Airfix model of the Crusader. It's a beautiful, beautiful... Such uh, a nerd. <laughs> and uh, it used to fly off the supercarrier, which was at the t- time the first ship to support jet aircraft, the supercarrier USS Forrestal. Beautiful. So Young went on to become a test pilot, flying planes like the Crusader II and the F-4 Phantom II, where he held several records for time to climb. Yeah. I like that. Yep. And fellow astronaut and former NASA boss Charles Bolden describes Young as simply awesome and that he was one of the best pilots he'd ever met and that most people get into a plane, but John Young wears his plane. Imagine that quote against you. <laughs> yeah, he just wears the plane. It's like it's oh. part of his clothing. Do you think people say that Jamie Franklin wears podcasts? Oh, absolutely. 
because you know. <laughs> well, you do. I think they should. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I tell you, I'm I'm reading uh, John Young's autobiography because I'm I'm so amazed by it. It's called Forever Young, which I think is quite. <laughs> oh yes. Uh, but yeah, when you when you hear about his uh, flying days, it's it's just amazing that he's still alive. Like, you, is it a Bob Dylan song, Forever Young? I think it is, but did he do it forever first? Forever Young, Forever Young. I want to be forever young. No, that wasn't no, him, was no. it? I don't know. No, I don't, no, I don't know. But anyway, uh, so you made me John like Young joined... <laughs> John Young joined NASA in 1962 as part of Astronaut Group 2, along with the likes of Neil Armstrong and James Lovell, and was the first of that group to fly into space in Gemini 3. So he beat Neil Armstrong into space, that's how cool he was. Absolutely cool. Famously costing the US taxpayer millions of dollars. Or so they said, by smuggling a corned beef sandwich onto the spacecraft and disturbing their test of space food. After Gemini 3, he commanded Gemini 10 in 1966 with his pilot Michael Collins, famously of Apollo 11, of course. And Michael Collins went on to perform some spacewalks uh, as uh, and in that mission, they performed a rendezvous with the two Agena target vehicles. Beautiful. Young went on then to command Apollo Ten, which will be heading for its fiftieth anniversary next year, joining two other space legends, Thomas P. Stafford, and of course one of our favourites, Gene Cernan. Uh, they set off on a dress rehearsal for the actual moon landings. And this time, Young was the first person to pilot an Apollo spacecraft around the moon on his own, about eight miles from the lunar surface. And they returned to Earth in the capsule that's now at the London Science Museum, reaching a speed of 24,791 miles an hour on, Come on. on May the 26th. And that is the fastest manned vehicle of all time. So come to London and see that in the Science Museum. Fastest manned vehicle of all time. John Young has been inside it. And every time I'm going to go there and, and, and look at it and go, John Young's been inside that. You know, the picture of him on his spacewalk, I just couldn't stop looking at it. it was, <laughs> there's so many beautiful photos, but that for me topped it. Oh, man, it's just... uh, so going on from there, the support crew for the mission included Bruce McCandless, who passed away only two weeks before Young. Yeah, so we, we yeah we had as we mentioned yeah, as we mentioned. So uh, it's a bit of a coincidence. Uh, so Young was slated for Apollo thirteen as the backup commander, uh, but after the failure of that mission, I think they sort of switched things around and rotated stuff, and he became then the commander of Apollo sixteen. Uh, and while waiting for that mission, he had to study uh, very hard in geology, like they all did at that point, because there had to be a kind of scientific reason for going to the moon. So Absolutely. Get studying. So at the moon, there was a problem once with the service module, and Gyro 2 would make the service module vibrate excessively. However, after six hours of tests and analysis, Houston decided that they had found a workaround and they were able to continue the mission. Wow, I t- I, that that in the book it is it just feels terrifying. It, it's it. When, God, can you imagine? No, uh, Mattingly, Ken Mattingly. I you, I cannot believe what what nerves of steel he's got, and they're both sort of they're looking. I think Ken Mattingly's looking out the window, and he's telling them that their legs have uh, deployed properly. Uh, mm. uh, but then every time he's trying to do stuff, he's like wobbling around, and then they know this is a bit of a disaster because. If if stuff's wrong, they won't be able to sort of mate up again and and uh, go back to Earth. So that, it's a big problem. So 
they they were all quite terrified but they also in this position of they don't want to go back and do an apollo 13 where they've just gone mm. somewhere and not and just like not even had a problem and had to come back <laughs> so oh, yeah so it, it's like so it's a bit of a nightmare nerves of steel so uh, while they were at the moon so the, it, young actually stood on the moon this time so he's piloted and he's been a, a moonwalker as well so charles duke duke and young took three moonwalks up in the Descartes Highlands. I'm glad they got old Br'er Rabbit here, back in the briar patch where he belongs. I, do you know what? I love that quote. I'm not even quite sure what it means, but I think it's... Um, I used to actually read old Br'er Rabbit books as a kid. And, um, Did yeah, you? Yeah, it's, it's an American thing, and it's got quite a lot of... Um, I think there's a lot of significance in the South America. I don't know, but I think so. I think it's like a proper, real big children's book, like Straw Peter, I guess, over here. And it's like... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting any of these references. I'm just, I'm just not in your generation, man. Oh, yeah, thanks. You know? Yeah, yeah. But I'm, hung- I'm hungry caterpillar generation. Like George Bush. <laughs> so yeah back in the briar patch uh yeah but, but i think it's about like um uh, old brer rabbit tricks the fox into sort of releasing him back into the briar patch by saying oh i'll tell you what if, if you could do anything to me you can eat me boil me whatever as long as you put as long as you don't put me back in the briar patch <laughs> mm. so the fox yeah. puts him back in the briar patch and goes ah and he goes ah well that tricked you <laughs> <laughs> The old sly devil, eh? Yeah. So Young was the backup commander for Gene Cernan on Apollo 17 after Dick Slayton had sacked the Apollo 15 crew for taking stamps on their journey. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible stuff. Uh, It goes on to say, Charlie Duke recalled, uh, I found out from the flight surgeon that my heartbeat was 144. John's was 70. John saying, yeah, well, I told him... I said mine is too old to go any faster. <laughs> Brilliant. So, yeah, and I think just Duke sort of said, we all know what the truth was. John was 70 because he was a stoic badass who <laughs> yeah, didn't seem to get m- rattled much by anything. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Young then became chief of the astronaut office after the retirement of the first American in space, Alan Shepard, in 1974. Whoa. And on the 12th of April, 1981, and this is the big one for me, 20 years exactly after Yuri Gagarin's first ever space flight, John Young commanded and Robert Crippen piloted the very first space shuttle mission, STS-1. Can you believe Incredible. that? What's a, I, can't, I cannot believe how brave you have to be to do that. It's on. Yeah. It's the own. It's the only mission ever of a of a maiden test flight of a USA spa, spacecraft to carry crew. Ever. So it, it's like it like to, to like complete. It's like you. There's a good chance you'll die. But yeah, I mean, it's just see you later. it's crazy. I mean, that was. I mean, I think that's why people were even thinking about doing SLS. EM1 as a as a crewed mission presumably we're thinking mm. back to STS1 uh but I mean, it's amazing even the russian with their buran was it was automated so obviously the technology existed to to do an aut- automated flight yeah the weird thing is that young apparently was completely obsessed with uh safety he was absolutely committed to safety uh but mm. had very very kind of little regard for his, his own safety it would seem 
Absolutely. So, a, a spe- so one of the things that they had, which I didn't know about, in the in the space shuttle, as ejector seats, they borrowed the ejector seats from the SR seventy one Blackbird, my favourite plane. <laughs> and, but but uh, but not only that, but 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 it, like that's like a sort of if 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 it came if that came to that of using the uh, ejector seats and you've got all these things like rocket boosters and solid f- and the and the fuel tanks everywhere uh, hmm. and and they get blown up by um like ground control they they will blow them up uh so that they don't fall down on everyone so right. if, if you eject you've somehow got to be really fluky and get out of the way of all that exploding stuff so it must be at, and plus the fact you're in a spacesuit so pulling the uh ejector cord and all those kind of things must be really really difficult and don't even mention the hrsi tiles which were the uh which were the tiles on the space shuttle that never really been tested and there was loads and loads of problems even before it ever flew with them coming off or being stressed or smashing and or, or, or even coming off in like a, a kind of zip of them and of course if any of the heat tiles are missing it's game over as as unfortunately the shuttle found out much later on in its um career it really did. So, Matt, who do you think was watching from Red Sector A? I know who was ro- watching from Red Sector A. It's only Canadian band Rush, who would later go on to write the song Countdown, featuring dialogue from Young and Crippen. All about that launch, yeah. So Red Sector A is also a Rush song on the next album. But, uh, yeah, that, it's, <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite funny as it started a... Uh, I, I posted that up on Facebook. And a lot of hmm. Rush fans don't really like the song Count. I mean, Signals, the album it's off, is brilliant. And Countdown, I don't think, is one of the stronger songs on there. So uh, it's, not, it's, no. not, it's not a Rush favourite. But I quite, I, do you know what? I quite like it. I think it's just because, <laughs> because it's about the space shuttle on STS-1. But my fa- how, how, how long is the bass and drum solo in it? Uh, it do you know what's really weird? It's, got, it's kind of got a keyboard solo, which Rush aren't particularly Whoa. famous for. Um, yeah, uh, but there's there is a fantastic song with uh, transmissions from STS One, and that is "Hello Earth" by Kate Bush, oh. which is on the ninth, which is on the ninth wave as she's lying in the water. She's looking up at the night sky and all the stars, and she imagines yes. herself as a space shuttle coming over the, the ocean, looking down at the sea with the stars reflecting back up. And she can see all of America and, and the coast and the weather moving around. How cool is that as an image? It's just incredible. She's, I think, other than my mum, she's my favourite female ever. Sorry, sisters. I don't, I don't, you're obviously included. But, Matt, one thing we both agree on is that that's our favourite gig we've ever favorite been to. Favourite gig we've ever been to, and she played that song. So we've had oh my God. Young and Crippin at our favourite ever concert. Um, it's just incredible. Amazing. So, wow. Who didn't attend? I think it's Reagan. Yeah, he didn't attend because he'd, he'd only, he'd got shot a couple of weeks before in, in a, an assassination attempt. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's, what's really weird is it's bringing all a whole heap of memories back to me about that era. I was very young, but I, I, it's, it's, I obviously remember Reagan getting shot and I remember STS1 as well. But wow. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. So on board Columbia was a couple of extravehicular mobility units, EM- <laughs> EMUs, which are essentially big spacesuits, uh, for young and yeah. Crippen in the event they have to go out and do a spacewalk to fix stuff. 
So Crippen would have been the one that goes out and Young would have been the person going back out after him if he needed help as well. So they were expecting maybe that there was stuff broken on the space shuttle. And what's a really weird one is hmm. is that they um, they had to fly around... Uh, they had to fly around and have a secret satellite take pictures of the uh, of the underside to make sure that it wasn't damaged and they didn't even know why they were doing those maneuvers really that's how secret that satellite was covert yeah well they didn't know they weren't allowed to know about that satellite and only sort of a few key nasa members were so they did this kind of maneuvering it's like well, I don't know what that's about and it was so this satellite could take a picture of their tiles to make sure they were intact <laughs> jeez louise yeah. this mission orbited at about the height of the space station but originally had been slated as a test run of the return to launch site the rtls abort scenario uh, but was seen as being extremely dangerous. And as a consequence, John Young overruled the proposal. He said, let's not practice Russian roulette because you may have a loaded gun there. And STS-1 went ahead as the first orbital mission. Yeah, so it's like yeah, <laughs> practicing a manoeuvre that's essentially really, really dangerous is probably mm. a, a bad idea. And he was right. Yeah, agreed. And so that flew up from Pad 39A. And, of course, the big excitement at the moment is where? FH. <laughs> the Falcon Heavy, the Pad 39A. Oh, but the, so cool. But that Gagarin timing Drink. 20 years after... <laughs> 20 years after was actually a bit of a coincidence because actually the flight was supposed to take place two days before, but there'd been a bit of a computer glitch. Really? Mm-hmm. So the STS-1 orbiter, Columbia, also holds the record for the amount of time spent in the orbiter processing facility before launch. 610 days. <laughs> Almost two years. The time needed for uh, the replacement of it of its heat shields tiles. Yeah, but so that that's pretty much the writing is already on the wall for the shuttle there. Because it's like basically... It's on the tiles. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's basically saying the only way that the shuttle was ever going to be cheap was if you could turn around this the, the orbiter really, really quickly. Turn um, around, orbiter, and go back <laughs> into space. <laughs> but it, it, Beautiful. Yeah, so even Elon Musk, with he ha, even he has to speed up this turnaround of the, um, of, of, of the Falcon uh, to make it cost-effective. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so... <laughs> so, Matt, yeah. Young landed the orbiter and said, in jest, do I have to take it back to the hangar? <laughs> and after waiting 45 minutes inside, he got off and kicked the kicked the tyres, apparently, in celebration. He was whooping and going, woo, woo! And then he got out and kicked the tyres. And, and Imagine it, if he'd re- broken his foot. Or, or the tyres had burst, bearing in mind there's something yeah. like 500 they're prob- PSI. I was going to say, they're pr- probably quite expensive <laughs> as well. But but you know what? I don't blame him. Yes. So there's a few weird things about this mission. The, the amount of noise and Go vibration on. produced by the shuttle almost destroyed the craft when it took off. So, Jeez, so, really? Yeah, they had to upgrade all that water that pumps in. They, they, if they'd known about some of the damage that happened at takeoff, Young said that he would have flown the shuttle to a safe altitude and ejected, which would have meant that Columbia was lost on its maiden voyage. Oh, God, yeah. And a really weird one that I didn't know about was three people died in a, a nitrogen atmosphere a- 
accident. I think that they vented off some nitrogen. And of course, people wandering into a nitrogen rich atmosphere don't realize that they're suffocating to death. Mm, and so, they, yes. so, so these three people just passed out. Another two other people went over to help them. They passed out. But their uh, unconscious bodies were seen by other people. And, and uh, most of them were saved apart from th- two of them died pretty much instant, uh, died that week. And the other one died much later from from uh, from the injuries caused by it. I mean, horrend- horrendous or what? Very, very sad. So Columbia went on to fly the next four shuttle missions. Yeah, and then Young flew again in 1983, the sixth mission of Columbia on STS-9. And that was the first of the European Space Lab missions. And it had Ulf Meerbold aboard. And he was the, ah, yes. But he was the only, um, he was the only uh, uh, astronaut that we didn't end up speaking to do we we were looking for him for ages and we ended up we saw him give a speech didn't yeah we? yeah that was about yeah. as close as we got so uh so that's yeah that was his record sixth space flight no one had flown we'll get to you Ulf. yeah we'll get you Ulf. that was the record sixth space flight so that was the sixth time he'd been up in space much more than anyone else so uh he was supposed to fly again on STS-61 to deploy the Hubble yeah. Space Telescope. <laughs> so oh, imagine wow. if he'd done that one as well. But the Challenger God. disaster basically meant that he he never flew again because he didn't he didn't his his turn didn't come round again. So uh, Alan Bean describes Young like this. He says Young was the best engineer and the best test pilot of all the astronauts of the early space age. Without question, he was the most important astronaut of the space shuttle era. He was the best ever chief of the astronaut office in Houston. Nobody matched him. That is incredible. And one here quote from Glyn S. Lunny. As the only astronaut to fly the Gemini Apollo and space shuttle ships, John's passion for safety was the signature emphasis, even obsession, of his career. Yeah, oh my. Wow. So just as just to put it all into perspective, he's logged 15,275 hours flying props, jets, helicopters, and rocket jets, more than 9,200 hours in the T-38, and 835 hours in spacecraft during six space flights. So he's had six space flights. How many launches has he had? Oh, I don't know. He's had seven launches. Seven? Six off Earth, one off the moon. How about that? What What a life. Yeah, on January the 5th, he died from complications from pneumonia at the age of 87. Well, rest in peace, sir. Um, and, uh, wow. Godspeed, John Young. My goodness. My goodness. Yeah, so you're... Your homework, people, is to get onto YouTube, um, have a little research of, of John's bits and pieces, and definitely check out some images of his spacewalks Actually, because check out his speeches. Incredible. Check out his speeches. His speeches are oh, yeah. absolutely incredible. They're, they're amazing. So in, any interview with John Young is absolutely incredible. He, he really is the astronaut's astronaut, the most experienced astronaut of all time. So, wow, there you go. I could- absolutely incredible. Um, Matt, so I've got we've got we got, we I, I've got so many questions, Jamie. But who should we ask these questions of? Well, Matt, I don't know if we can speak to him because I know how much of a busy guy he is. But the only person I'd like to ask is Eric Berger, the interplanetary podcast, putting the ace back into space. Uh, guys, we are joined now by a very special guest, senior space editor at Ars Technica, with a degree in astronomy, meteorology, and journalism it's the one and only eric berger eric how are you 
I'm doing fantastic. How are you guys doing? We're good. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We wanted to get you on the show for a while now, and it seems a good time because I saw your tweet not long ago about some bits and pieces that you were looking forward to in 2018. So what's number one for you? Where do you where where do you get goosebumps thinking about something that's going to happen this year? Well, there's a lot that could happen in 2018 and there's, you know, a lot that we kind of hope that will happen in 2018, but we're not sure. But I think certainly the highlight of the first half of the year is probably going to be the Falcon Heavy launch. And that's simply because, you know, we've been waiting for this for four years, five yeah. years. It's been, it's been a long time. If you, were bet- if you were a gambling man, what date do you think that's going to be? I know we've still got to wait for the static test, but. If I had to put money, I'd put money on about February 14th. So middle Ooh. of February. Oh, that's looking ah, more hopeful okay. for a for a for a, a transatlantic journey. <laughs> that's good. That's good news for us. <laughs> Are you we're guys trying to make it over for that? We're desperate to come out. Yeah, we're des- desperate to come out. We'll yeah. see if our normal mental lives will allow it. But um, yeah, very exciting. Um, I mean, what would you say about that launch? Is is the thing that excites you the most uh, um, other than the obvious is there any kind of implications that blow you away thinking about that i just really think it's the idea that there's a private company in the united states that you know essentially saw a business market in in self-funding you know a heavy lift launch vehicle um you know for entirely commercial purposes mm. certainly that's something we've never seen you know anywhere in the world these have been the province of you know, large countries and, and national space agencies. And now there's a private company that says, we think there's a market for, you know, 50-ton launch vehicle. You, we're going to leverage our commercial contracts with NASA to to build this. And, and, and they did it. And it's now ready to fly. And so I think once it's flying, it'll make a pretty profound statement kind of about where the future of the industry is going. And especially, you know, the launch is going to be pretty spectacular, um, hopefully. Um, you know, Elon has promised, you know, a, a show one way or the other, but I think the landing, you know, has the potential to be equally exciting because, you know, they're going to have the, the central core come back, I think to a drone ship, but then the, the two side mounted boosters are going to make a coordinated land at the landing zone. And so, mm. you know, that's going to be pretty, pretty amazing to see as well. Um, and I, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's going to basically send a message about, you know, that, that, big rockets and reusability that, you know, that this is the future. I mean, it's, it's, abs- it's absolutely incredible what he's done really, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the whole thought of, of, yeah, of showing off that kind of reusability. And uh, I'm right in saying, aren't I, that Falcon Heavy will be the most powerful launch vehicle since Saturn V. Is that right? The shuttle was more powerful. Um, but it's, it, would be, it would be twice as powerful as the, um, the Delta IV Heavy, which is the most powerful rocket you know, flying today. In 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 terms of what's just happened with um, with Zuma, I'm, I don't know. I, I, I just want to quickly quiz you about that. Would you, will that have any effect on uh, on SpaceX? This 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 Zuma uh, not actually making it into orbit, or do you think they're going to be get off with that one scot free? <laughs> <laughs> that 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 has remained to be remained to be determined. There's a lot of, of subterfuge going on there. I will just say that, that with respect to Zuma, you know, it came from a pretty good source on Monday to me that there was, had been a problem, you know, that basically the payload had come back to Earth, the second stage of the, the Falcon 
nine rocket. My initial reaction that was that's really bad for SpaceX. But you know, apparently, <laughs> it, it, if it you know, this is all supposition because like you can't even get confirmation officially that there were briefings to people in Congress about this on Monday. Although I, I have pretty good information that there were, um, but. You know, if if that was the Northrop Grumman adapter that that failed or that it, it didn't separate, then yeah, I think SpaceX is, is you know get off getting off scot free. Certainly, you know they're acting like it. They're you know there's no sign of an investigation like you know we had with their last two accidents with the you know with, with the upper stage problems. Um, you know they came out pr- pretty soon afterward and announced an, an investigation and. and you know, talked about what was going on. And now this is classified, so that's different. But they are, you know, they're pressing ahead with their commercial launches this month and the Falcon Heavy launch, you know, at the end of the month, early in February. So uh, at this point, it's hard to see too much of an impact. I think down the road, the real question is whether this affects their military business. And, and so we'll see in future contract awards whether the United Launch Alliance, you know, starts winning more of those head-to-head in SpaceX or SpaceX keeps getting those. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a really <laughs> – at first I thought, oh, no, that's a really stinky start to the year for SpaceX after they had a, a pretty terrible 2016 and then had a, an absolutely bang-out 2017. <laughs> it seemed like, oh, no, that, that's a, they're going to have a – that's not a good start. And it, particularly <laughs> if Falcon Heavy blows up and takes out 39 as well, <laughs> that'd be pretty awful. Well, there's – you know they they've been really unequivocal in their statements. Even the statement they released on uh, on Monday, and then Glenn Shotwell's statement on, on Tuesday. You know, again, sort of was you know, that look. There was no problem with our rocket. You know, yada yada yada. Um, but my understanding is that there is a pretty aggressive blame game being played out. You know, sort of within Congress and the military about what actually happened. And I think, you know, assuming. You know, because there's been no official confirmation, but assuming that whatever Zuma was, that it did did fail, you know, there will be an investigation. Ultimately, you know, the, the U.S. government, you know, will make a determination. But boy, there's a lot of there's a lot of belief that that this is just this is just clandestine activity. That this was really some kind of launch to monitor North Korea or their nuclear activities, and and they're sort of putting this story out there to you know to to mask the fact that this this satellite really is up there so who knows guys yeah i did see a so, lot Eric, of that i um one thing i wanted to ask you was uh about your website now if anyone uh i mean certainly uh you know online you've got a large following anyone who doesn't follow you uh, or hasn't been to the website can you talk a little bit about the website yeah so i write for a technology what well, was originally a technology website called ars technica um which was bought by conde nast um, about a decade ago and uh-huh. they've, they've kind of like, it's, it's basically tech. It was tech news for, for grownups basically. Sure. Um, and a few years ago they, they, they started expanding their science coverage and then they came to me in 2015 and said, you know, we'd really like someone to cover space full time. And so they hired me away from a, a newspaper I was working at here in Houston and said, go cover space. And so, you know, it's great. You get to work out of a home office, get to write about whatever kind of captures my fancy, and it's really been a great opportunity. It's Ars Technica, A-R-S-T-E-C-H-N-I-C-A.com. And I know um, I speak on behalf of myself and Matt when we say you have to check it out. It's incredible, and, you know, we we definitely have been going there to 
C-sections of what we should be talking about on this podcast, right, yeah, it, Matt? It, it, it's definitely one of the go-to. It's it's our, it's, it's one of our go-to uh, uh, pages all the time. It's it's the it's it's the top of my little feedly list. Is the Eric Berger <laughs> feed? It's 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 fantastic. I mean, it, it's it's great stuff. You've always got a really well. You've you've always hit it pretty much on the money with the uh, with, with your um, yeah with your angle on things. So thanks very much. You <laughs> you're a good inspiration for our podcast. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, there's you know the way I look at it is you know you try to try to keep things real, and what's real isn't always kind of the happiest news. I mean, there's lots of positive developments in spaceflight, but there's lots of kind of, you know, downers or, or negative stuff too. And so talking of downers, we, uh, we just spent a long section of our podcast, this podcast talking about John Young, obviously, uh, you know, very sad, rest in peace, 87. Um, but, but you looking back, what does his legacy mean to you? It's just amazing to me, you know, the breadth of his career, if you think about the fact that his first spaceflight was in the cockpit alongside, you know, Gus Grissom, mm. who was this legendary figure who made the second flight in space, um, had to be, you know, horse collared out of, you know, he almost drowned after his, his Mercury flight. He did the first you know, Gemini flight and then died in the Apollo 1 fire. And then to think that sort of his career went from there to the moon, you know, walking on the moon, <laughs> yeah. to, to flying the first space shuttle mission, then being a mentor to a lot of the, you know, the younger astronauts that some of whom are, are still flying today. Um, it, one of the things about being in Houston is this is where a lot of the Apollo, you know, the key Apollo figures, you know, retired. Hmm. And so it, I've been reporting on space in depth for about a decade now. And, and so one of the things that you know, I've gotten to do is get to know a lot of the flight directors, the flight controllers, the engineers, and the astronauts mm. who participate in the Apollo program. And they are in their 80s and 90s now. And they are starting They are starting to go. And, and actually, you know, the 50th anniversary of Apollo is, is coming up, uh, Apollo 11 in, in 2019. But And we're doing this big series it's called The Greatest Leap that's kind of looking at those missions from the Apollo 1 fire through the end of the Apollo program. And we made a conscious decision, I made a conscious decision to do those interviews in May of last year, simply because some of the key, key figures, we did, you know, hour and a half long video interviews, some of the key figures are passing away, you know, we're losing yeah. them, them all the time. And so it's, you know, in that sense, Young's passing is kind of, you know, something we're dealing with every day down here. Absolutely. And, and whilst it's very sad, looking back at what they've accomplished in their careers is is just so inspiring. And, and uh, we hope that anyone else listening or researching what, what he's done in his life is just, I mean, you can't get much more colourful than that. Because <laughs> I noticed that uh, often you're not the most um, uh, optimistic about SpaceX or Boeing and their uh, human space flight <laughs> this year. <laughs> and I wonder, do you, do you think that John Young would have been a bit disappointed, really, that he, did, that he didn't see, you know, American human launch vehicles uh, for the last, well, it's been a long while, hasn't it? And so what do you think are the chances of, of, of SpaceX and Boeing getting this working this year because that's got to be one of the exciting things for this year yeah i i don't know how john young john young felt um about that i know that a lot of the apollo people that you talk to find it hard to believe that you know after they worked so hard to win the space yeah. race in the 1960s you know sort of 
you know, 40, 40 years later, 45 years later, we're relying on the people we, you know, the people the United States vanquished to, to get into space. Um, it's a good question. Uh, I, I have some pretty good sources who I can't give up, but there is some real doubt about whether the human, you know, the, those spacecraft are going to be ready to go this year, whether NASA is going to give the rockets and the spacecraft clearance um, to go into space this year. Um, I have, you know, seen some internal timelines um, at NASA that suggest that the first human flights could occur in December of this year um, for planning purposes. I would say this, you would expect, you know, the, the crews to actually be named for the first Starliner and the first Crew Dragon flights to be named 12 to 18 months before those first flights. Um, and we don't have any, you know, announcements of those. I mean, there's the four commercial crew astronauts, but then you would get two of them assigned to a vehicle. And we, ha we haven't seen that yet. Um, I, I would rate the chance of, of I, would be, I would be optimistic or I would be hopeful that we would see the, the, the demo flights this year. So the, the you know, flights without people. To, up to the space station, you know, before the end of the year, and then look for crew flights in early 2019. I think the chance of seeing crew flights this year is probably significantly less than 50. percent <laughs> Well, I, well yeah. and with that yeah. in mind, we've got the crazy uh, trip around the moon, which I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming is a complete non-starter. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, that was that was just such an audacious announcement that. You know, almost from the beginning, you looked at it and said, "said No way." I, did he announce it in 2016? Is that when yeah, when they I think announced it? Was. it? I mean, it was they near had the a... end of 2016, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. or maybe oh, that's the right. beginning was... of 2017. Yeah, it was about the time that NASA. I think that was political. Now it was early 2017. It was about the time that NASA was was looking at maybe putting people on the first exploration mission, like EM1. And Elon kind of got tweaked about the timing of that, so I think he kind of rushed that out there for political reasons, basically to show the Trump administration that, look, we can do this too. You don't need to pay all that money for SLS and Orion when we could do this kind of flight too, same flight profile. Listen, I mean, that's that's basically talking about doing something like Apollo 8, although they, I, I don't know that they would go into lunar orbit like Apollo 8 did. Um, uh, Apollo 8 was just such an amazing mission, and the idea – that you know, you know, SpaceX, when it's still focusing and, and trying to meet NASA's requirements for a crew mission into low Earth orbit, would then, within a matter of months or a year, sort of take that leap into deep space. <laughs> I, I mean, God, I'd love to see it, but it, it just seems like <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a huge step. I, I mean, I, that's a mission I don't really see happening for five years. Well, uh, yeah, Me and Matt, are st we're still waiting for our invite. <laughs> are you we, guys? Matt? Are you guys the guys that bought the tickets? By the way, are you seen? Oh, uh, we don't. We don't want to say anything, but you know, <laughs> the fact that it's gone so quiet on that front is 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 pretty telling, isn't it? And and it should tell you, yeah. And Matt, how many Patreon donations would we need for that trip? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're almost just a there. few more, right? Or maybe <laughs> I think it's orders of hey, Eric, just a few orders. Eric, of let me uh, let me ask you this. If tomorrow yeah. I could send you for a week, week's vacation, to to live in either a lava tube on the moon or a lava tube on Mars, which would you pick? Well, I mean, do I get to come back? That's the first. <laughs> you one. get to come back after a week, no problem. Okay, well, I mean, you got to go to Mars because no one's ever been there before. That's um, very true. It's very but true. But I, I mean, I'd, you're, you're okay with the long. You're okay with the long flight. 
You said I get to come back. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. The question. That's we true. can get people to Mars. The question is, can we get them back? Um, that is true. I mean, I'd love to go to both places. I'd love to go into space. You know, I, I'm hoping for my retirement, I can afford a ride on New Shepard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, do you think I, I've often annoyed Matt by saying that when I'm 76, I think I'll be able to legitimately afford a flight into space. I think I'll be able to do it by then. Do you think it's realistic to say that when we get to that kind of age that it will just be as much as an easy jet flight is now? I don't think it'll be an easy jet flight. Yeah, um, maybe a bit but more. I'm I'm pretty optimistic on Blue Origin and the New Shepard system because, you know, you they have they've now flown I think 7 times um, mm. successfully. With their with their system, which is still experimental, and they've each of the flights has looked pretty smooth from an outsider's perspective. Um, so they've demonstrated that they have a pretty good system. You know, you can put six people on that 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 spacecraft and, and get into space and come back pretty quickly. Um, I I think that you know certainly people probably will fly on that spacecraft by the end of the year, or early 2019. I would bet that they fly on that before commercial crew happens. Um, and then, you know, you're probably looking at a $250,000 ticket, something on that order to fly right. on New Shepard. Hopefully that price comes down eventually. Um, you know, God bless Elon and God bless Jeff Bezos because those two guys and along with Virgin and some other places are really trying to push the envelope on this. I mean, you look at the national space agencies and I'm not going to bag on NASA, but you know, they launch a few astronauts at a time and that, you know, in, in all of their plans for the next 20 years, that doesn't change. You know, it's a, it's a select few and the astronauts are amazing people. Um, but I'm all for these other opportunities to, to go into space. And I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, they're, they're making the right changes, and if they crack the nut on reusable space flight, it does, you know, it does really change things down the line. It's very healthy competition, isn't it, between them two? Kind of Lennon and McCartney-esque. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> I thought, for a minute there, I thought you were going with Lennon and Stalin, and I was not going to not that. Yeah, I don't want to be, be any part of this. Yeah, Trotsky. Yeah, Trotsky and Stalin. Favorite Branson is Trotsky. But um, they, it's, it is nice to see them pushing one another, and I think that certainly you can see them feeding off one another. And I think it's a healthy competition, too, between SpaceX and Boeing. Because Boeing mm. is a, is a stodgy old aerospace company, but they have they have made changes to do some innovative things with Starliner, and so I think you know SpaceX is pushing them to to sort of up their game, and and at the same time Boeing is pushing SpaceX to you know behave in a little bit more of an adult adult manner, and so I think it's we're at a very healthy, interesting time in spaceflight, certainly you know, much more exciting than things were a decade or 15 years ago when you just kind of had six or seven space shuttle flights a year and that was about it. And Eric, what would you say is your, this might be a tough one to answer, but out of everyone that you've been in contact with in your career so far, what would be a highlight for you? Well, probably the coolest thing is that over the last 10 years, um, I've gotten to know Chris Kraft pretty well. He was Mm. the first flight director at NASA He's now 93 or 94 years old. Um, you know, so I live, cool. live about a half a mile away from him. And so, you know, he's every couple of months, I just go over, sit up in his den and talk to him. And, you know, we'll talk about current things in spaceflight. 
We'll talk about problems with NASA and we'll talk about sort of the history. And it's, it's pretty amazing to have someone like him and have other people, like when you're reading about something or you have a question, you just say, hey, what, what happened back in 1963 with yeah. you know, this flight or, or that? And, and just to sort of get their perspective on, uh, on things. And I, I bet the stories are unbelievable. It, 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 they are they are they are amazing and to think about sort of all of the things that that nasa did between 1959 and 1969 um it's just incredible and this i mean the soviet union was doing cool stuff too um you know they and the space race wasn't over in 1967 or 1968 they were they were concerned that the russians were going to fly you know fly a couple of cosmonauts around the moon um like mm. apollo 8 before nasa did that and so yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, was, awesome. I was looking at all the sort of fiftieth anniversaries of things that are coming up this year, and there was, you know, the, yeah, the Russians had quite a few things in orbit around the moon and landing on the moon, didn't they? So it was, it, it's pretty incredible stuff. Round up, you know, uh, but it, it's almost like, yeah, space flight's lost its way, and I, I almost look to people like uh, Bezos and, and Musk as the people that that are going to take it into this whole new era. And I guess that, that is that commercial. The commercial aspect of it that's that that is interesting isn't it it is and that's that's kind of the frustrating thing for me i mean you know you look at you look at space flight and and kind of the way things have been done over the last 50 years and and that's really what's when you get down to it and you talk to jeff bezos um or elon musk but but i think you know they sort of when they were younger, they saw the space shuttle was flying and the space shuttle was going to open up access to space. And they figured that, okay, NASA is going to solve this problem, um, going to sort of get us on the road to a Star Trek-like place where thousands of people are in space or we're back to the moon. And, you know, and, and they, they go on to the Internet and they make their fortunes doing various things. And then they come out the other side and, and nothing's changed, you know. Mm. There's, there's a space station, but the shuttle's going away. Um, it never flew very often, um, and so they're they're really trying to to change the game. And will they succeed? I don't know, um, but it's the best it's the best hope we have. And and that's why I, you know I write a lot about the idea of reusable spaceflight. But it really is kind of the game changer if you can if you can master that with with the new Glenn or with the Block Five version of the Falcon Nine rocket and, and get a system that will fly ten or more times with not that much refurbishment. Um, then, you, you know, you're really, you're really changing, changing the equation. Um, and so, you know, we'll see if they do it. We'll see if they do it. I, I think they, I think they will, but they've got a ways to go. Well, here's one thing I want to ask, and that's, will you please, uh, come back on again at the end of the year and let's see, let's see what came true, what didn't, and let's have another wrap-up, because I think that would be fascinating. We can catalog all of our myriad disappointments about what happened. No, I think it's going <laughs> to be a it. great year. I mean, there's lots, of, there's lots of stuff we haven't talked yeah. about. You know, the small satellite companies, Rocket Lab, Virgin uh, Orbit, and Galactic are going to be doing some interesting things this year. Um, there's lots of cool stuff in space science, so I'd love to come on at the end of the year and, and sort of see what we did and what we didn't do. Yeah, do you, we'd love to have you. Do you think China? Do you think China are going to have uh, an amazing year this year? I can't help feeling that China seemed to be on very much on an ascendancy, but do you think that they're losing their momentum, or do you think that's going to just carry on? Well, they had some accidents last year, and that that set them back. Um, they have they certainly have big plans. There was an article. Um, Andrew Jones had an article suggesting that they were going to try to do, you know, upwards of forty launches this year between 
kind of their different providers of orbital rockets. And that would be a pretty incredible step forward. And obviously, everyone's interested to see if the Chang'e 5 mission works. Um, and we'll see if they get that off on time because they're, you know, they're supposed to launch two spacecraft this year, one to, to kind of be a data relay spacecraft on the other side of the moon and then the actually the lander on the far side of the moon at the end of the year. Um, so they've got big plans. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're just like everyone else. Space is hard and they, and they realize that and they face those challenges. So we'll, hopefully they'll overcome them this year and, and have a big year. Yeah, 40 launches is a lot. Yeah, that's yeah. That's, wow, that's doubling what they did last year, isn't it? <laughs> this is quite a lot. That's it un- is unbelievable. Go China! I'm backing China, guys. You've heard it here first. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. Anything, anything that really that you're. If you were to take a gamble on something that was amazing happening this year, what what would it be? If something that like out of the blue, a bit kind of left field. So, I mean, so so much. There's so much of spaceflight requires long lead times. Um, I don't have any big surprise. I mean, that's one of the things we didn't even talk about, like space science. But I mean, one of the big things I'm really looking forward to is as at the end of the year when we get New Horizons is going to fly by. You know, the MU69, a Kuiper Belt object. We've never seen. You know what these are, what Mm. these are going to be like at all. We have no idea. Um, So yeah, I mean. I mean, just after just after Pluto, and just how what an amazing surprise it was, wasn't it? That it was this beautiful object rather than a sort of dull rock, boring, yeah, yeah, <laughs> something like Mercury or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's um, yeah, that's going to be really, really exciting. I've got a question about that. As the as uh, New Horizons approach, will it will we get pictures of that object as it approaches before? Because it's January the first, isn't it? Two thousand and nineteen. So. It's, yeah, Will we get it's, something it's, it's before a, that? Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, my supposition is that, yes, we will see pretty good photos a day or two before, but it's dark out there. Um, and so I'm not sure of the exact lighting conditions, but I have no doubt that we'll get, get some advanced pictures of it. But remember for, for Pluto, I mean, it was not up until like three or four days before that we finally got some better pictures. Um, so, but there, yeah, before the new year ends, there'll be some photos and then, the flyby itself is about midnight here in the United States um, on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and it's going to be early on the morning for you guys over there. So um, that'll be pretty amazing, though. I mean, Pluto was, you know, Pluto was pretty awesome to see, and so I'm very excited to see what what's beyond it. Yeah, and I think that absolutely the Japanese are in action, aren't they, with Hayabusa two? That should be an interesting one. That seems the Japanese be- are doing cool stuff. The um, the the um, Bepi Colombo is launching on its way to Mercury yep. this year. Um, the we start to see um, the asteroid Bennu that the uh, Osiris Rex. Osiris Rex, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, and, and there's you know there's lots of cool stuff, lots of cool stuff to look forward to this year that that's pretty well locked in because these missions are already flying. Yeah, I I, th- I think the Osiris Rex one, I almost get a little bit disappointed because I think it only gets to something like 1.2 million miles away from Bennu. So I don't know how, how <laughs> whether that's considered close, but I don't think it is. But because uh, yeah, and then it's, I think it starts like hunting it down, doesn't it, and doing its maneuver. So I don't know when it actually gets to the asteroid. I got I got a bit confused when I was when I was researching that story. I must admit. I think it gets to like 1.2 million in August, right? Or is it October? And then and then it starts spiraling down, and it'll 
And then, then they stay there forever. And I don't quite understand why. Like they're there for three years before they actually try to sample it. So I'm sure there's very good reasons. I just haven't researched why. That's some homework for us all. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know whether we're actually going to get to see Bennu for a while. We, uh, of course, there's um, Juno that is going to keep uh, bringing back some amazing pictures. The last, the last lot were incredible, weren't they? Maybe if the whales on Europa shoot the Juno mission down, that would be that would qualify as a big surprise this year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'd love that. That would be one hell of a show. But yeah, those photos, those recent photos of Jupiter. I mean, wow. Amazing. Is there anything prettier than that? It's just like a swirling paint tin of psychedelic colours. Amazing. It's something you'd find on a Pink Floyd cover for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And maybe yeah. maybe one of the astronauts going up will, will grow a whole foot <laughs> in space <laughs> and not be able to, and, not, and get actually stuck on the space station. <laughs> this could happen. You never know. <laughs> to get, they'll have to get the dragon flying a lot sooner than they they'd anticipated <laughs> maybe that would get force spacex and boeing to get off their feet right so i've got the horrible job of saying we have to wrap this up unfortunately however eric thank you so much because that's been such a great little chat oh it's my it's been my pleasure always fun to talk space you guys have a great day thank you very much absolutely thanks so much and as we say we want to get you back on end of the year we're going to stick to that Sounds great, Jamie and Matthew. Sounds great. Brilliant. Thanks very much and have a good evening. Okay, you too, guys. Awesome. Cheers, Eric. Thank you. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! Jamie, how how cool is Eric Berger? I'm not just saying this. I think he might be up there in my top three Uh, guests of all time. And that's saying something. I'm so jealous that he gets to he gets to hang out with an old timer Apollo mission controller. <laughs> Unbelievable! That's just, that's just that. What a person to go and have a chat to and get some data. You know, at the end of uh, the Straight Story. Yeah, one of my favourite films ever. C- c- carry on. I've kind of got a vision of Eric and Chris sitting out on the veranda of one of those, you know, on a rocking chair, shooting the breeze about space with a bottle of johnny walker or something ah oh. love that hey matt talking of space mm-hmm. you know what i've got for you hit me with your space fact the record for the fastest launch velocity belongs to the new horizons probe which lifted off in 2006 on a mission to pluto and the kuiper belt this piano-sized spacecraft sped away from earth at a blistering pace of 36,000 mph. Whoa. What do you think about that? Uh, I've got a question. When you say piano size, do you mean the RD700 or a Yamaha C7? Well, it wouldn't be, who would take a <laughs> C7? Gross. And Matt, as you know, uh, the greatest um, stage piano right now is the RD2000. The oh, 700 whoa. was well, old man. Whoa. Where have you been? I thought you were so, still gone with the Roland V piano. For all of you looking for advanced tonal shaping, <laughs> no, go stop and see it. your local Roland dealer today. Stop it. stop it. Stop this, Matt. You started it. No, I did. Um, hey, I want to tell people to subscribe. You do. Hey, Matt, what's new that they can also do? They can also make their way to patreon forward slash interplanetary and and to be honest that has been the most overwhelming response 
ever. Thank you re- so much, guys. Uh, and we will be doing all the shout-outs to our brilliant Patreons that deserve their shout-outs next week. Um, and their T-shirts are going to get sent. Yeah. I just, and handwritten I, notes. <laughs> I know. There's so much to do, Jamie. And it's I kind know. of caught me on the hop. And so I just haven't done the things that we were supposed to do. Well, so, that's why I'm here, Matt, to pull you in line. Yeah, exactly. You know how lazy I am. So I need to... It's true. Uh, so we'll get all that sorted. We're just absolutely going to thank all the people that have helped out. Uh, so Absolutely. So if you want your name read out at either the start or the end of next week's podcast, then yeah. get yourself patroned up. Oh, I tell you what, you won't regret it. And what I like about Patreon is it back in the olden days with people like Bark, the only patrons were things like kings and queens. But nowadays, even the common man can be a patron, a patron of the arts and science. Matt, are you calling our listeners common? No, I'm calling them kings and queens. Well, it sounds like you're slagging them off. I won't have that. <laughs> I wasn't. I was saying that now that they're as important as kings and queens, this is the new era. This is the new... That's true. It's like the, the new space age. That's true. And, and uh, I'll tell you something else. You know you said forward slash earlier, Matt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we should call it uh, an end to the podcast because, you know, I need to... Uh... Go for it. <laughs> I need to go to the little boys' room. And now you've said that, I need to log off. (laughs) Oh, God. Sorry, everyone. Bye, space freaks. Bye, interplanetary (laughs) podcats. That's such a geek. That's such a geek thing. When I say space freaks, I'm like, cool, yeah, I'm like hip. My new sign-off is going to be, you have been listening to the interplanetary podcast. Good night, space freaks. Podcasts. Oh, you, you mucked it up. Sagan bless. All right, stop talking now, Matt. Sorry. Bye, everyone. See you soon. Bye bye.